This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, uh, I'm Dana Glazer. I'm the founder and creative director for Slightly Alabama which is a line of men's leather goods. What I love about retail is the fact that we can build community and we can interact directly with the consumer um, in a way that you can't online. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Hansen from Ignition One. I have a guest host today. Hi, Kathy how are you? How are you? Good. Kathy's from Lean Canvas Advisory, and she'll be joining me today. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. So tell me about the name, Sutley, Alabama, because um, there must be some sort of connection to Alabama or... You wouldn't name yeah. your company slightly Alabama. Um, well, I'm, I'm pra- after after five or six years of the business, I'm pretty practiced at answering this question because it's the first thing everyone asks me. So I am from Alabama, first and foremost. Uh, my family goes back about several generations in northwest Alabama, a little area called Sheffield in the Tri-Cities. Many people know Muscle Shoals for the recording studios and the music that takes place there. And my father's from Decatur, which is just down the road a little bit. And uh, I... Uh, Spent the first 10 years of my life in uh, Huntsville, um, all in the north. And then my father was uh, relocated down. He worked at uh, Redstone Arsenal um, with NASA. And then he was relocated to the Kennedy Space Center in Titusville, Florida. It's a little, kind of tiny little town down there. But I spent every summer, every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, spring break back at my grandparents' house in Sheffield, kind of growing up there. And so that's really kind of where my love of craft and design kind of flourished. My grandfather was a hobby woodworker. My grandmother painted and wrote poetry. You know, mostly she cooked food, but as a hobby, she she painted a lot. And then my other grandmother was an interior designer. So, you know, there's not a lot to do in Northwest Alabama for someone visiting there on a regular basis. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandfather in his wood shop. I've had a lot of time sitting at the kitchen table early in the morning with my grandmother and teaching me how to draw and then just kind of spending the time there doing those things. Uh, so when I started my company in 2013, you know, what we started as is a leather goods company where I designed and we make all of our leather goods using traditional leather crafting techniques. And it was really kind of a moment in my life where I was going through a career crisis. I was a I was a, a creative director at a um, uh, for an in house advertising uh, kind of department inside of a financial company, and it really wasn't for me. So I kind of went through this whole process in my life where I investigated the nature of happiness and I thought about why I was so unhappy in my career and what I really needed to do with my life. And this idea of like I'm just going to go back to doing what I love and what I, what feels most natural to me, which is making things. Um, you know, in college, I worked on a farm. And for the first six years out of college, I did a lot of woodworking and furniture making and, you know, finished carpentry and houses. And, and that passion was really what was driving me every day, not sitting down at a desk and managing spreadsheets and creative campaigns or anything like that. So I quit my job and I uh, decided to kind of start pursuing this, building this company. And we had to come up with a name. My background in, in creative and advertising understood how I understood how important branding was and that we couldn't change it later, um, that we needed to get it right the first time. And it had to be truthful and it had to be honest and it had to be marketable. And so I spent a long time on the phone with my wife and she was out in California one night and over a bottle or more of wine. 
um, she kept asking me, why is it that you want to do this? Why is it that you need feel the need to kind of quit your job and kind of pursue this? And she was doing that in an encouraging way. She had already mm-hmm. supported the decision, but she was trying to help me work through that branding problem. And I said, in many ways, it goes back to my growing up in Alabama, up here in New York. I was living here since 2010. I really miss that, that, that idea of being alone and working with my hands. And it was all kind of started and inspired from that kind of childhood. And so in many ways, this is all about my home in Alabama. And then it came to me slightly Alabama, knowing that we weren't going to build a company that you could immediately look at and say, oh, those products come from Alabama. We weren't going to brand everything Alabama. We were going to make a global company and something that was contemporary in design and, and, and really relevant today. But the brand name really comes from who I am rather than the product itself. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I came up with the name. It's really interesting. I feel like there's a theme in, in this show when we've spoken to founders of companies and a lot of them started at advertising or marketing jobs, either in an agency, mm-hmm. were unhappy and left to follow That is passion. a common theme, to be unhappy in marketing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like, it, I don't want to say it's a cliche, but it almost feels like we're getting to some form of a cliche where there's something about that job that really, there's there's these creative people who are trapped yeah, yeah. In, in a world that's maybe not as, as supportive to, I think, creativity, and so they leave to go on. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's a great training ground, first of all, for anybody who's going to run their own business. I think one of the challenges in the, in the creative space um, when you're working in, in that kind of, that, that world is that the client knows they need what you offer, um, but they don't it's not 100% their world. They're looking at all kinds of other things and they're, they're judging those things. And so a lot of times it's really difficult to convince the client of what you believe to be right about the creative campaign. And so it constantly has to go through a process of, in many ways, becoming inferior to what you believe as a creative is right. Um, now, you're not necessarily right in the whole, you know, they, they're seeing bigger pictures a lot of times. And so that kind of can become frustrating and can make you feel beat down um, after many, many years. And yes, sometimes the client is completely wrong and you just have to do it. And then you just feel like your work is kind of valueless. And so I think that's where a lot of that comes from. And in many ways, one of the things that was most enticing to me about starting my own company is the chance to finally be my own creative director. Um, and I could, can, could pursue what I believe was right without anyone saying no. So And control every aspect. I think also with the client, right, you never really know 100% of who they are sure sure yeah so yeah that's i think that's really what why it's so enticing for a lot of creatives so how, how does that play in i mean this marketing obviously your background is that you're creative you're hands-on you build things i mean from creating a an actual product uh made out of natural materials to the marketing like is is that a fluid process is it something that you fully control? Is there a team of people behind you that are, are working on that? How connected are those things? Uh, with regards to the question of is, is it a fluid process, it is absolute chaos all the time. So <laughs> no, it is not a fluid process and nothing ever gets executed in the same way or for the same reason. And there is not a team behind me. I am 100% in control. Um, you know, the bigger we get, the less in control I would like to be, you know, because when you're starting off at a at a computer and at a workshop table in your apartment, it's you don't have a whole lot to do other than execute a website and a couple of things. But now we're you know we have a store in the village. We have kind of you know several different verticals in our business. Uh, so we I really can't do all of the things necessary from a creative standpoint for the brand that's good enough. You know my focus has to be on really 
defining and staying true to the core values of what the brand is, refining that further and further, and then designing great products and everything else that goes along with that, whether it's social media or um, even the financial strategy around the marketing, any of that stuff is in many ways should be secondary to what my unique contribution to this company is. And so I would love to have less control over that. But right now I am 100% in control. So did you grow your business by opening the store or had you already grown your business? And if so, how did you do that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, the, the, the timeline is sometime in the spring of 2013, I decided I wanted to do this in the summer of 2013. June is when I decided I'm going full head, uh, a full speed ahead. Uh, in October, I, started i filed the llc for the paperwork and in november i quit my job and we sold our first product by december and then in february we went to our first trade show so we moved pretty rapidly and at the first trade show i knew we the only way we were going to grow um is if we went uh during the the, uh, we went down the wholesale route we needed those big orders those big chunks of money in order to grow so we went straight down that and we did that for about five years uh built a a list of about 80 stores throughout the the country that carried our products. And in that, um, obviously grew our online e-commerce platform. And then uh, we opened the store just about a year ago as an extension of the workshop, the, you know, my products, as well as we carry in there about 40 other uh, designers. It's a men's clothing store, 40 other designers head to toe within a particular kind of aesthetic uh, jeans and boots and and you know flannel shirts kind of thing and uh and and all of those designers are personal friends of mine and most all of them are also independent designer owned and most of them can't be found anywhere else in new york where we have our store so that's pretty cool and that's pretty pretty great concept so so in terms of the leather goods that that you produce the idea was Let's get it out there, have some partners out there where the retail partners, where the, the goods were being sold, mm-hmm. e-commerce, obviously, important strategy, and then and then you go to your own sort of brick and mortar. Do you still have that? Is that still the 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 strategy where there's there's partners or are you just e-commerce in your store now? Yeah, we're just e-commerce in our store now. I mean, the whole wholesale world, the retail world has changed drastically even in just the past six years since I started the company. I think it's six years now. I can do my math. So for partially it's just out of necessity. You know, our orders used to be, um, you know, anywhere from two to $10,000 for an order. And then they started going down to like 500 to $1,000 per order. And that was just indicative of, um, I think, the, the, the boutique retail environment. So with starting our own store and, and you know, trying to grow our online, you know, our online business, you know, obviously part of that's about controlling more of the margin for ourselves, being able to reduce our prices because we don't have to consider the wholesale aspect of, of the product. And then also we just don't have enough bandwidth to supply so many stores throughout the country uh, in that way. So our business is really those two verticals, online and uh, the store, but it's also the... Um, the custom design I do for a lot of companies. So, yeah, I was I was thinking about. I'm I'm somewhat obsessed with the leather making. I don't I don't know why. I think part of it is I have a place in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and there's a area of upstate New York where a lot of the leather goods were made back in you know turn of the century. Right. Tanners, well, Tannersville, Gloversville, mm-hmm. um, are it was 
the the closest town to where we are, big town, is Gloversville in Johnstown, New York, and that's the leather stocking region. There's there's like a history there. Mm-hmm. Is that is that sort of the concept of taking some of these trades that have maybe been partially lost to time? These artisan sort of uh, crafts that, uh, you know, again, could be lost to mass production mm-hmm. and, and bring them to the, the sort of modern retail world. Is that part of this or is it is that just me sort of romanticizing? No, I mean, I think you're thinking on a level much bigger and much more appropriate than I ever did. And that sense that I'm not necessarily an advocate for this. It's just I have to do it for myself or else I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the appeal is exactly what you're saying. Um, it's not what drives me every day. What you know, what I thought about when I decided to quit my job is I had done a lot of different things leading up to this, and I am competent a lot of those things from you know the corporate world. I spent several years as a high school teacher. Before that, you know, I, I what were you teaching? I taught literature. Oh, yeah. So, and then you know, obviously doing the woodworking and all these different things, and I play music and, but. Of any of those, the things that I, I chose to pursue for my, my career now is um, I just believe that this is the one thing I'm the best at. Um, I'm not better necessarily better than anyone else, but of all the things I can do, this is the thing that I am the best at. And that's um, – I felt it was irresponsible not to pursue the thing that you believe you're the best at, no, regardless of how high the hurdle is to actually make it doing that thing. So are you making these in uh, these leather goods only in New York? Yeah, um, I, I make them myself, and so I live in New York. Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah, 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 our workshop is mm. on-site, um, so yes. On-site in the West Village? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, we have a 2,200-square-foot store in the West Village. The front 1,100 square feet is our retail environment. The back 1,100 square feet is my workshop as well as a dive bar that I built back there that is for my friends and for the parties we throw. Oh, I love this. So you yes. have built your own community there. Yes, yeah. And so can can customers come in? Like, are they, you know, talk about your customers and yeah. what intrigues them the most and well, how much I, time they spend in your store when they're there? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most surprising things, even though it was the plan for me all along, or the hope, I should say, the most surprising thing is from day one, literally from, I think, a week before we opened the store, we started meeting people who lived in the neighborhood in the West Village, which is a unique in in New York in the sense that it's truly a neighborhood. It's kind of separated from everything else. When you're in the West Village, you don't know that you're in the rest of New York City. And it's a lot of locals who have lived there for for a very long time. They've raised their families there. A lot of creatives, um, a lot of very successful musicians and actors live in the neighborhood and choose to live there. And so we started meeting the customers from day one. And I think we have a, a group of, let's say, about 10 customers who are in my store almost every single day. Um, it's where they come before or after work to just hang out because we have uh, couches and chairs set up in there. We have a big TV. We've always got music. We have the the dive bar in the back. Not that they, not that it's like open to the public necessarily, but it's just like something that my friends can come and use. And now those customers, I have two of them that argue over who gets to watch my dog when we go out of town. Um, I have what one. What kind of dog? Oh, we have a French bulldog. Who is in a store every single day, all day long, and she is one that we have several families that when they're walking their children home from school, the children have to stop by so they can play with her. Um, We have a couple of other uh, French bulldog groups in the neighborhood who bring their dogs on their walk in to play with her. One of my customers who lives next door actually went to the same breeder that we did and bought her cousin. And then we have, I think, three 
customers who I did not know a year ago, who now I would claim, I would say are some of my best friends. And we all ride motorcycles together every single weekend. So I think that's the core of our customer base. Um, and then it kind of extends beyond that. People who are repeat customers, um, I, a lot of people who use us as a resource for their own personal style. We're less of a gifting shop and we're less of a, um, a tourist destination. And we are really kind of a local source for the family uh, or for, the, for the, the family that we have built there in the West Village. I definitely want to, to to talk a little bit more uh, about that strategy, the sort of hyper-personalization, at least in my mind, that's the way I would put it. But we do have a tradition on the show, mm-hmm. which is we share a snack, we break bread. I'm extremely excited and curious as to what you brought us. And He brought us something from the bar. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been good. I did think about Bloody Mary's. Uh, but I, I think the the request was something that was a reflection of our ba- of my background or interesting to me. So this morning I um, made buttermilk biscuits and jam. So we have hopefully you made them warm this morning. And, yeah, I made them about an hour and a half ago. Oh, so hopefully amazing. they're, still, they're oh, wow. still good. So we've got those that we can uh, try out. Which is, of course, I grew up in the South and we eat this type of food all the time. We're also uh, it's important that we make sure you never go away hungry. And then of course working with your hands. That's kind of what amazing. we do. Up next, you'll hear Dana share his thoughts about building a brand and a community. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes wherever the best podcasts are found. Dana, amazing biscuits. Uh, as expected from a, from a Southerner. I think that is the first time on the show that somebody actually made the snack well, that they you. brought in. So thank you for that. And, and there's was... six more here, and I feel like I'll be putting them in my bag. Yeah. Well, you can... Please do. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, as we're talking, you can definitely yeah. just go grab one. Well, the request to do something that's kind of a representative of my background is very difficult in New York City. So yeah. making them was kind of the easiest way. So They were delicious. Well, it's kind of a good segue. Like, I think the the concept uh, that we're talking about of the sort of back of the store, if you will, this sort of communal space. You know, I feel like in New York specifically, maybe it goes to biscuits as well, but uh, I think there's this attempt for authenticity, like I'm going to create this experience in my retail space. And I don't know how often those succeed, but it seems like from what you described, you're at least succeeding in creating a community of folks from the neighborhood. And it seems to me like that's really important to you and the brand. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. When Experiential is kind of a big thing in retail nowadays for very good reasons. One is that the retail environment is so challenging um, you have to come up with brand new ways to attract customers and to keep them in. But a lot of times it can feel contrived. The very best of them, when it, even if it does feel contrived, it's still interesting and fun. And so, you know, for me, from from day one, I mean, I, maybe it goes back to the fact that what I do is such a lonely work because that's by myself designing. Um, and so whenever I can, I, I think the idea of building family is so uh, important and the experiential side of it is the best and most natural way to build that family. So, you know, we have the dive bar. Uh, if you can't build relationships and family in a dive bar, then you've got major problems. You know, we've got the workshop where people can engage with me and kind of see what I do and ask questions. Uh, we teach workshops. So, uh, and then just the kind of the communal aspect of the store design itself does that. And, um, you know, I, I, I've said before that I'm not a traditional retailer because I'm not 
a retailer at all by trade or by design. Um, I kind of happened upon this and I kind of, it became a, a bit of a necessity just to survive and to go forward. And so in many ways, we don't do anything in the traditional way. And I don't mean that in the kind of like way that a lot of startup people like to talk about being a disruptor. It's just because I don't know how to do the traditional way. And it might lead to our downfall completely. And if, if it does, that's okay, because we're still going to do it the way we want and what we think is best. Um, that's not the most exciting thing to say to investors, but I also don't have any investors and I don't plan to have any for a while. So yeah, that's kind of our approach. And I, and I just want to say again, I don't, I don't mean that in kind of like a, a, a either false humility or a sense of kind of pride that we're going to do it differently. It's just, I, I can only do what I can do because I'm not very good at anything else. So <laughs> it's kind of amazing. I mean, I actually, it's, it's, it feels so real, authentic and honest. And I think that's where really good, almost every really good brand you can look at starts is with that. And it's the try attempting to do something mm -hmm. that, you know, does come off as being a little bit contrived is where I think a lot of companies fail, or maybe they'll succeed for some time, but then they get in their own way. It seems like you don't have any of that potential getting in your way, at least for the time being. But it does actually, to me, create this one problem, which is scale. Like, how do you scale this dive bar concept, this this community concept? Like, how do you, how do you bring that to potentially, you know, a digital experience, the e-commerce piece? Is there an intention to do that? Can you do that? I think I think that the truth of the matter is you cannot bring it to an e-commerce or a digital space. What we have built there, you cannot do. So we're not even going to try to do that. Uh, maybe some brilliant tech guys and, and digital marketers can figure that out, but I can't, and I don't want to spend time or waste time doing that. The only thing you can do in the digital space is build a beautiful brand that's easy to shop, that's market competitive, um, do your advertising, and then communicate with your customers as much as possible. But that's kind of the end of it. You know, we can use those spaces to drive customers to our store. And certainly we have people who um, are visiting New York from lots of places around the country or the world, and they they know of us and they come in to see the store and say, I, I kind of wanted to buy stuff here or meet you. And that's always one wonderful to scale it. Um, I mean, this goes back to the the, the fact that I kind of don't know what I'm doing and I don't know that we can scale it and I don't know that we need to. I think there's too much emphasis for me personally on this notion of building a company and seeing how big I can get it and how quickly I can sell, sell it. And I just, I'm not interested in that. I think we've seen too much in the past several years of retails, retailers um, or brand developers who have done that and then it's destroyed their businesses completely as soon as they get investors in there. Um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, I, I can think of one other brand that is big scale and is doing things more traditionally and yet is building community in a way that is authentic. And that is Billy Reed. You know, it's just so happens that he's from the same area that I kind of grew up in. Uh, but biscuits came in a Billy Reed bag today. Yeah, they did. Um, you know, so uh, we our shop is right around the corner. And we're really good friends with um, the retail staff there at, at, at both of their shops on Bond Street and, and on Charles. But I do think he is doing it right on a very large scale. The shindig he has every single year is one of the most interesting and, and pleasant experiences I've ever had um, from a retail standpoint. But beyond that, I don't know of anybody else. Uh, a Faraday brand is another one that is doing it well. Um, and it wasn't always, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't always doing it on a large scale. It just kind of happens. So likely for you, it'll happen kind of organically if it happens. Yeah. And, and, because I'm assuming you surround yourself with people 
like you. I will say that one of the most pleasant things about starting this business and surprising things is that, you know, I started the business with the kind of the ego that I could do everything aspect of it. I could design my own logo. I could launch my own website. I could do my own legal work, which was true. It was necessary if you're going to go out completely on your own and do that. But from day one, the day I walked in to talk to my boss at the time and tell her that I, I was quitting, she asked what I was going to do. I said I was going to start my own company. And she said to me, I don't even know what you're about to start, but I want to invest in it. And I said, well, we don't need money right now, um, So, but I appreciate that. And we had a good friend of mine who is a professional photographer who said, I want to do all your photography for free. We had a friend of mine who is an experiential designer and retail designer. And when she came to my store, she says, I'll do it for you. And so we did. We have built this um, super team of, of experts that do support us 100% for free because they want to be a part of, of this thing. Right now, we have a, a guy named Nick Kova who does uh, video work and photography for me just because he believes it's a good extension of, of his own creative opportunity. He just wants to support it. And so I, I guess I don't mean to say we don't have any support. We do. It's just not traditional support and the fact that we hire that. So where else do you, what do you do or where else do you go in the city? It doesn't necessarily have to be a store that you know, creates an environment that you want to be in or that supports you or inspires you. Um, so you're asking like what other store that, so yeah, what other store that inspires me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a bar. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, the Cowgirls in the West Village is right down the corner from me. It's a great restaurant. It's got a Southern feel to it. I really enjoy being in there. Not to mention they serve really good Southern country food. My wife says I eat there way too often, but I don't agree with her. What's Is your wife from Alabama? Or? No, no. She's born in Indiana, um, raised in Florida and California. So she she will say clearly that she is not a, a Southerner, not that she doesn't want to be. It's just she's not. And she, so um, she's very proud of her roots uh, for she good reason. She herself a Midwesterner or – I think she considers herself a woman of the world. Um, so, uh, but she is proud of her roots, and she's very proud of her wonderful family. So, um, that's important to her. And I identify with my 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 roots, and she does with hers. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Billy, like, I hate to bring up Billy Reed again, but I just think that he's doing it right, and I really love being at his stores and at his events that he does up here. And the fact that he flies to him and does he's there on site for them. That's pretty unprecedented for a designer of his level to, uh, you know, at the Shindig every year, he, or at least this past year, he, we had two days of breakfast and he served the breakfast himself. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, so I would say that those guys and the, the, the retail staff is some of the nicest retail staff I've ever met. You can walk into a lot of stores and feel uninvited. Um, you can walk into a lot of stores and feel like you're not cool enough to be there or you're bothering them. And I, you don't feel that in, in his store. So he's built a culture that is pretty impressive. And it's rare, yes. but it's really real. Well, so I definitely feel that because I, I don't have much brand loyalty, but I definitely have a pair of Billy Reed shorts that I'm going to wear into the ground. So yep. They're starting to get holes in them because I've had them for a good five, six years. I have a Billy Reed blazer. I just I love the experience of going in there. To your point, it makes me feel good. It does have a little bit of a, of a southern, not so New York feeling to it. It it is warm. It is inviting. Um, staff is great. Did that relationship come organically between the two companies? Like it seems odd that now there's two 
both from yeah, I'm headed I'm same... headed for slightly Alabama soon. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you. I think um, when I started this, this sounds foolish, but I was in advertising, and particularly in the financial world, for the last three years of my career. The most fun part of advertising. Yeah, it is such a blast. Um, derivatives and all those words I don't understand. Me neither. Um, <laughs> So I was in that world for for a while, and when I started the company, I it sounds so foolish to people who are in retail and to me now. I did not realize there was a world of independent designers out there. I only knew of the big ones. We shopped only at Bloomingdale's or, um, you know, John Barbados maybe or somewhere like that. J Crew. I did not know realize there was a world of that, and I thought genuinely I was going. I mean, I knew of Etsy and the mm-hmm. smaller levels. But I thought genuinely I was going to be doing something that was completely not done before. Um, not, And I wasn't trying to do something not done before. It's just I was going to do what I did and I didn't see any examples. And then, of course, when you get into that world, you you realize it's really huge for good reason. And that's exciting. But I also felt very concerned about the whole – the brand name, Slightly Alabama, with the kind of checkered past of, of the Deep South and, of course, of Alabama. Would people understand that the state is much more diverse and the people there are much more wonderful um, than a lot of the, the history and, the, the, the you know, its precedent? Um, would they get that? And uh, I didn't know of any other designers that came from Alabama. And I discovered both Natalie Channon of Alabama Channon and Billy Reed after I had launched the company. And also the the documentary Muscle Shoals about that area came out mm-hmm. after I launched the company. And I was kind of like strange. It felt really strange. I was like, why is this happening? And why hmm. from the exact same area? Mm-hmm. I mean, Natalie Channon is up there in Florence. Like it's weird. And I don't know why it is. And I don't know. I didn't know either of them beforehand. Right. So I don't know what that's all about. But our relationship with them developed because our store was right around the corner. And when you have a store called Slightly Alabama, lots of people are interested to find mm-hmm. out what the hell that means and what it's all about. And um, they came over and we started finding out we had all of these deep connections. And then it just became a very natural relationship. And I don't think that the, the relationship built was not built because of the combined Alabama roots. It was just built because of the nature of their store and the nature of our store. We threw lots of parties. They all came over and hung out. We just became friends. We could have been from anywhere. Um, And so that's kind of how that started. So how often are you having parties at the store? And when can we come? (laughs) Um, We just had one big one last Thursday. Um, We used to do them about once every week or every two weeks. uh, And that's exhausting. And so we're going to do them less uh, often, probably once a month going forward just because it's easier to manage um what is a party at slightly alabama what, what what should you expect usually always music related music is a big part of my background uh in my life and so it's whether it's a live performance we actually built a little stage in there kind of a little riser stage so either a live performance or something related to music like a discussion last week we had a, a, a party for the artist den and their sound garden box set release so that's going to be a part of it or a lot of times we'll do like um book signings or book readings and then the bar will always be opened and turned on so there will be lots of beer lots of wine and it usually ends up with me having to kick everybody out because we're not a real bar we have to be out of there by 10 o'clock usually so yeah that's kind of it's about wow i definitely we got to get on the invite yeah we're going and you'll and the other thing that happens there is all of the regulars who are there at every single party will, will be there and you'll meet them and then hopefully you'll become one of those regulars and so it's starting to become a place where 10 or 15 people at every party is the people that are always there. Hey 
Claire, are you having a bad Monday? Well, you shouldn't have a bad Monday because you just downloaded funny people talking on your phone, right? So just click the play button. Wait, Danielle, Danielle. What? What's funny people talking? Oh, it's this podcast with, I mean, you're one of the co-hosts, Mark. It's oh, yeah. you and me and, and Elsie, our producer, she's there. And we have really cool guests on, like illustrators and comedians and actors. You should listen. Do you listen to your own podcast? I hear it every time we record it. It's a really good show. You should listen to. Uh, do you listen, Elsie? No. Typical. She, I know. Typical producer. You know who listens? All of our fans who love the show. I <laughs> know <laughs> we dropped it. Listen to funny people talking. Mm. It comes out every Monday on Mouth Media Network and wherever the best podcasts are found. So, Dana, you mentioned how important music is in your life. And so, love to know, maybe it's going to surprise us, maybe not. Like, who's your favorite band? Your go-to, I got a playlist, Spotify playlist, this band's going to be on the playlist. I think um, the Gaslight Anthem is probably one of my favorite bands from just a hard rock standpoint and from a songwriting standpoint. I think, you know, most of their songs titles even sound like uh chapters in a book of literary fiction and but i think that probably the number one guy and this sounds once again cliche but it's jason isbell from northwest alabama who i listened to for about three years before i knew he was from that area so i have to say i don't know why i I don't know why i gravitate towards uh things from that uh, area but it it does happen and i i think jason isbell is probably playing almost every single day in our shop i I don't i don't think that's that rare i mean i think all of us have this sort of connection to something from where we grew up and it's just you can't lose it you can't shake it i mean i definitely have it but mine definitely leans more towards hip-hop rather than perhaps uh rock but i'm diverse in that sense the you mentioned something about a, a Soundgarden, what was that, box set release? Yeah, so in 2013, Soundgarden, at the end of their world tour, they at the at the Wiltern in Hollywood, their performance they did was with the Artist Den, uh, live from the Artist Den, which does these kind of super secret VIP concerts with uh, artists at very special locations, and they film it for PBS. And so in 2013, they did it, they filmed it for PBS, it was about an hour-long segment, However, Soundgarden played for two and a half hours straight. So there was all this other footage in the archives there. And um, Soundgarden, from what I hear, considered it to be kind of their seminal body of work. The fans loved the show so much and were begging to have this music released in full. So the Live from the Artist Den decided to put together a uh, box set of the entire performance as well as an experiential kind of 360-degree sound-mapped, 180-degree screens at the Wiltern in Hollywood and at Brooklyn Steel here one night only with the pole two and a half hour performance that you could experience in a way that was as close to a live concert as possible um, with real smoke and real lighting on the screens that were happening. So what happened is last Thursday, we hosted a kind of a really small, intimate party with Mark Lieberman of The Artist Den, um, where he we, he and I did a Q&A on our little stage talking about the performance, and we played the performance live, or not live, but on our TV in the store, and also sold the LPs and the, um, the box sets. There. That's great. How did you get involved? Like, what was the... I would like to say we were just so wonderful that they came to me and said, we have to do this at your store. But my wife is the chief operating officer for Live from the Artist. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That helps. That works. So so suddenly I have um, come to really love arm tattoos Mm -hmm. and and yours are quite extensive. So what made you what made you go down that road? And are you eventually 
going you know, like on your hands or? Yeah, I think so. I do have two full sleeves on both of my arms. Um, and I'm thankful that I don't have any more arms left because they are very painful um, to get done. Is it just sleeves? Is that? No, no, no. I got more special ones. You're going to go up? Is it good? You can do the neck? My wife would kill me if I did the yeah, neck, yeah. but I still might do it one day and just say surprise. She's pretty open. The to neck is, is definitely a commitment. And then when it goes yeah. to face. Oh, it's never going to go like... to face. It's never going to go to face. Then your uh, runway. Yeah, it's never going to go there. Um, I am. Yeah. So I started my first tattoo when I was 18. My best friend and I uh, decided that we we were going to do this as kind of a bonding thing. And so I put, we've got a really bad tattoo on my back, small, but it's on my back. I feel like that's the start of everyone's tattoo journey, a wow. bad tattoo on their back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this on my upper shoulder, right shoulder, bad tattoo. And then I got another one on my left arm with a buddy of mine when we graduated college that he was in, in, in the Air Force. And I went over to stay with him one weekend and he got his platoon tattooed on him. And I got a pirate ship tattooed on my left shoulder for no good reason, okay. except for the amounts of alcohol that we drank that night. So it led to a couple of other tattoos that were just spontaneous. And I always appreciated them because they were a reminder of the really cool experience. It was always with someone else. But then I thought I needed to deal with this a little bit better. So my left arm, I went to an artist and had a, um, them incorporate some of the bad tattoos I had into a beautiful sleeve. I didn't, it has no meaning other than it's, it's an nautical. Art. It's nautical. That's true. But it, other than it's the artist piece of work. Um, and then I'm really proud of what she was able to accomplish. And I'm proud to have it on my uh, left arm. And then my right arm was really just, I want to continue this. And so I went to an artist here in the, the in the uh, city and asked him to come up with something beautiful that kind of worked with it. And I was, um, so, yeah. And he was a good merchant because they're really working beautifully. No, together. he definitely, he was, uh, <laughs> he's, he was trained in fine arts at, in college. He was a very sophisticated artist in and of himself and a great tattoo artist. And uh, so I went and had the entire sleeve on my right arm kind of. So uh, when you get a sleeve or you get sleeves, mm -hmm. how much does then your fashion choices play in? I mean, is it, are you consciously wearing short sleeve shirts to show off the sleeves? Or are you no. consciously not like... I've always been a jeans and t-shirt guy. I mean, yeah. it's what I'm wearing right now. It's what I wear every single day. I, you know, when I was in business, I had to wear a suit, which was miserable for me. So I don't know that I'm making those decisions. I mean, if it's cold outside, I'm not wearing a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a real commitment right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, today, the first day of fall, it's, uh, it's like 90 degrees. So, yeah, uh, yeah. good, good, good choice there. So we talked about a lot. Any final thoughts, things we might've missed, um, either about you or the brand? People should know. I think we've said everything. I know I, I, I should have a parting words of wisdom. It's unnecessary. I think we've. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody needs the wisdom that comes from me. I think I've said enough times today that I have no idea what I'm doing. So, um, but, but you yeah. look forward to doing it every day. Most days, yes. <laughs> there are some days. What's well, I think is I think is important. Is, you know, as much as I've talked about building community, as much as I talked about trying to serve the customers, we do screw up all the time. And we do have customers that, for whatever reason, might get upset with us because we failed them. What's your biggest screw up? What was the thing that you screwed up? And you're like, oh, my God, this is going to either ruin me or the brand. Like, is there one thing you're like, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that? I'm okay screwing up, but that was. Um, I've talked to my accountant because he probably <laughs> has an opinion on that. You know, I, I don't, I, I, I can't think of any one thing that was so drastic like that. I mean, it's just, it feels when you, when you let a customer down in any way, shape, or form, whether you take too long to deliver the product or whatever custom product you built for them was not exactly what they expected. It feels giant. It feels like it's the end, even though it's not. So I don't know that there's been anything that, you know, I, I just was like, I throw my hands up and, and I 
I quit. I mean, I think we missed opportunities or I think that, you know, you know, from a financial standpoint, we fail all the time because we don't get, hit our sales numbers on a quarterly basis. Um, but it does feel it does feel monstrous when you no matter how small the failure is with the customer in it. Um, and I, I, I think the best thing is, is a lot of people in many different aspects of their life always talk about being a perfectionist and you have to let that go if you're going to be your own entrepreneur and that was the hardest thing to do, to let go is to screw up royally and wake up the next day and say well we're not dead yet so let's just keep going and that's that's a hard really really hard thing for an entrepreneur to do well dana i know that um the folks other than coming down to the dive bar in the back of your retail store if they want to get in touch with you and they can't get to the bar how would they yeah. do that I mean, I'm we're the we're the, we're the best on Instagram, which is at slightly Alabama, and uh, you know our email is hello at slightly Alabama. You can totally email us, and either me or our director of retail will respond. You know, we're not very good on any other social media platforms, just because I can only manage one. So Instagram is always the best way to get in touch with me. So awesome through DMs. Well, thank you, Dana. Thanks, uh, Dana. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks yeah, for uh, thank for stepping in for my co-host. That's fun. Thank you, audience, for joining us. I'm Chris Hansen from Ignition One. Uh, thanks so much. This has been Retail Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.